Welcome to the Park Road Podcast for August 31st, 2014. Today's podcast is a sermon given by Russ Dean, co-pastor with Amy Jacks Dean at Park Road Baptist Church. The sermon this morning is entitled, A New Way to be Human. Fifteen-year-old son, if he had ever even heard of Ferris Bueller. <laughs> Bennett said he had. Of course, he wasn't alive when Ferris was having his famous day off. You may remember Ferris Bueller's day off. Ferris Bueller was a good kid, but he didn't like school too much. When he took his famous day off, he'd already had nine unexcused absences. And the principal, Mr. Rooney, was concerned about Ferris Bueller and how he might influence all the other students at school. Ferris Bueller's day off was a great day, as I recall, though he got himself into a good bit of trouble, including destroying his father's very rare 1961 Ferrari GT. What a bad day for car lovers everywhere. Lots of interesting scenes in the movie, but the one I remember the most uh, was in the principal's office. Mr. Rooney and Grace were having a conversation about Ferris Bueller. Mr. Rooney was concerned about Ferris and how he might influence the other students. And Grace had been, well, she had been somewhat seduced by Ferris Bueller. She was in love with him like everybody else at school. And they had this conversation. Mr. Rooney says, what is so dangerous about a character like Ferris Bueller is that he gives good kids bad ideas. The last thing I need at this point in my career is 1,500 Ferris Bueller's Ferris Bueller disciples running around these halls. He jeopardizes my ability to effectively govern this student body. And Grace says, and he also makes you look like an idiot, Mr. Rooney. (laughs) He says, thank you, Grace. I think you're wrong. And then Grace says, but he's very popular, Ed. The sportos, the motorheads, the geeks, the trashy girls. I had to clean that one up just a little bit. The blondes, the bloods, the wasteoids, the dweebies, the jerks. I had to clean that one up a lot. They all admire Ferris Bueller. He's, they think he's a righteous dude. The first non-essential purchase that Amy and I ever made in 1986 was a VCR. You know, they were new back then. 1986. Amy told a bunch of college kids recently that she used to schedule her college classes around Days of Our Lives so she could watch Days of Our Lives. And the college students said, why didn't you just tape it? And Amy said, tape it? There wasn't even a VCR when I was in college. VCRs were new and they were cool and we bought one. And spent, I think we spent $232 on a forehead model. We were uptown, (laughs) and we watched Ferris Bueller's Day Off, and I can remember rewinding that scene because I wanted to hear Grace talk about all the people that love Ferris Bueller, you know, the sportos, the motorheads, the geeks, the trashy girls, the bloods, the wasteoids, the dweebies, the jerks. Everybody loved Ferris Bueller. And I thought about high school days when everybody had some group to be in. Don't you remember, you know, the jocks and the cheerleaders or the preppies or the brainiacs or the band geeks, you know? Aren't we glad that all those childish cliques get left behind in high school? (laughs) Ha ha. 
Just check the bumper stickers in the parking lot or the back window of my pickup truck and you'll see that we still have our clicks. If you're a Harley owner, you can be a hog. If you have a ski nautique, there are reunions and festivals all across the country for you. If you like to hike or camp, you can find your group. If you drive a BMW, there's a club for you. If you're a bowler or a poet or a vegan or you love watching birds or saving the whales, well, there's a membership fee for you somewhere. This past week, the American Legion gathered in Charlotte and there were thousands of Legionnaires. Amy and I were just trying to go across town to the Charlotte Knights and we got caught in the parade and we had to drive all the way through town to get on the other side. And there were Legionnaires everywhere. And I said to Amy, looking at some of these folks, you know, I mean no disrespect here, but for some of these folks, this is all they've got. They're Legionnaires, that's who they are, right? I mean, you know people like that who get tied up in their group, and that's who they are. Apparently, just being human isn't enough for us. I've never seen a sticker on the back of somebody's car that says, the human club. We got to be something smaller than that, something different than that, something that gives us identity, that we can wrap our lives around to give meaning and purpose. Being Christian has been the dominant identity for millions. Now, I'm not talking about identifying yourself just by putting one of those little silver fish on your bumper sticker. I'm talking about finding in Christianity a philosophy of truth, a way of living around which we can orient our whole lives. I think, however, the Christian brand is somewhat in crisis these days. From outside, there are those who find in anything religious nonsense. Since the rise of the scientific revolution, there have been the skeptics who boil down all of life, reduce it to its most basic materialistic level, and they say that's all there is. The atoms which make up the molecules, which make up the rocks and the trees and us, there's nothing more. Those so-called reductionist or materialist are gaining ground in our skeptical age. I'm afraid largely because the church has been mostly unable to give the world a God who is big enough. I remember the first time I encountered someone like this. Amy and I were living in Montana, and we were on a volleyball team, and there was a player on our team in that rec league who was virulently anti-Christian. I had never met anyone so skeptical about the whole religious enterprise, and it was clear from talking with this fellow that anyone who could, who could see themselves as at all religious was simply foolish. I'd never met anyone like that. But I think there are more of those folks these days. Marcus Borg begins his book, The Heart of Christianity, by saying, for some, ta for some time now, I have been convinced that there is no intellectual obstacle to being a Christian. You know, for an academic to have to begin with that kind of defense, it shows what we're up against, doesn't it? For a growing number of people who care to think 
I'm not talking about intellectual snobs, just people who care to think Christianity itself is the intellectual obstacle. And I think that's a big problem for the church. Within Christianity, the crisis is even greater as we struggle to redefine faith in this scientific age. When I wrote that sentence, I thought, how foolish. We've been in the scientific age for 300 years now, but the church is still trying to redefine faith in the scientific age. In that same book, Marcus Borg tells of a conversation with a woman who said to him she preferred Buddhism to Christianity because Buddhism was a way of life. Christianity was just a set of beliefs. Well, she's wrong, as Borg goes on to say, but I can understand why she got that idea. And I think the struggle that we are dealing with this day as a local church is not the dismissal of religion by secularists on the outside, nor the redefining of the faith by factions within the church. I think we have pretty well covered that ground. But I think more at stake for us is the question of how important is faith really? In our lives, how important really is your faith? How much will we make it a part of our lives? Does it really matter what we think about Jesus or how much we make being part of an actual gathered community a regular practice of our lives? I think I asked you not long ago, what would happen if this went away? Not just this church, but the church. And Christians need to think about that when we think about what we're going to do with our lives on Sunday mornings. Does Christianity really matter to you? What does it mean? Is it an intellectually valid, ethically sound, practically efficacious way to spend our life in the 21st century world? Bill Gates, in an interview a number of years ago, said he wasn't much into religion because he didn't find spending an hour in worship a very um, efficient use of his time. I believe a Christian way to be human is all of those things. Intellectually valid, ethically sound, and practically efficacious. And I believe the church has got to learn how to share this with the world. When Amy and I were interviewing for our first church job, we sat together at the table. They may have interviewed us separately, but we began together. And an old gentleman at the table, we would later learn that he was one of the church's most faithful, if not also one of its most cantankerous old members, felt the need to ask what I'm sure for him was the essential doctrinal question of the interview. He kind of leaned back in his chair, as I recall, as if to set the importance of that moment. And he said to us, uh, Russ and Amy, can you give me the plan of salvation in 10 words or less? Well, Amy and I looked at each other. It was a long time ago, but we had still been married long enough that I knew without saying a word what the look on her face was saying to me, this one is yours. <laughs> And I also knew instinctively 
you know, with all that Baptist in my blood, that this was a good time to quote a little scripture. So I pulled out 2 Corinthians. God was in Christ reconciling the world. Seven words, Hugh. I think he was satisfied. You know, if you ask me for a theological base for the Christian faith, this is what I will say to you. God was in Christ reconciling the world. Whatever you think about God, however you do that theology, whatever you think about Jesus, no matter your Christology, however you understand the words Christ and reconcile and whatever your view of the world, to be Christian is to frame our worldview in some way around the work and the teachings, the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus. Christian theology has got to be Christocentric, centered around Christ. But in and of itself, that statement will not be enough. There are plenty of people whose worldviews have been centered in charismatic personalities, sometimes to the expense of wasting their lives or ending in tragedy. So what is it about Christianity that makes it so worth living in this world, even a 21st century world. I want to go to Houston Smith for an answer. Houston Smith, who is acknowledged to be the world's leader in comparative religions. Smith was raised by Christian missionary parents in China, but he spent a lot of his adult life chasing divisions of other religions. He came back to Christianity a number of years ago, however, and now I think articulates a powerful, case for being Christian in a pluralistic world. Every year I have the opportunity to entertain the confirmation class from Temple Israel. It's one hour of what it means to be a Christian. I am honored that my friend Rabbi Ezring entrusts me with that responsibility for his high school students. Now, each year I wrestle a bit with how to make this presentation. Because I know there are, that, that there are ways that the faith I articulate or Amy and I articulate from this pulpit don't always square with what is presented as Christianity in popular culture, TV or radio. In one of his books, Houston Smith defines three essential doctrines of Christianity. And in that structure, I have found a means of articulating Christianity historically as well as for me personally. So if you want to know why I am still a Christian today, why I still choose, and why I believe it is still valid intellectually, ethically, pragmatically, here's what I'll tell you. Number one, incarnation. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. God is not some distant overlord, the great supernatural power of the universe just residing out there somewhere, transcendent and unreachable. God is Emmanuel. With us, God. Emmanuel. When the church tried to define Jesus and how important he had been, how important was his influence, the church settled on language that is understandably heresy for other 
religions. But the church simply couldn't find any other language that worked. It was like God was with us in Jesus, in his touch, in his life, in his message, in his way, just like God was with us. And incarnational theology doesn't stop with one first century Jewish rabbi because Paul's affirmation about Jesus goes on to say that God has entrusted to you and me the message of reconciliation. Even more daringly, Jesus, who is called the light of the world, says, you are the light of the world. The same language. You are the light of the world. Incarnation isn't just about Jesus. Our theology can be, needs to be, incarnation. Amy told you just last week, the good news, according to Jesus, is that the kingdom of God has come near. It's with us. You can see it in your touch and mine. Your hashtag kingdom of God came near post have been fascinating this week. Seeing where you have found the touch of God incarnate in your very world. So powerful. A God who is just out there can't make much difference to us, it seems to me, nor is that kind of God very compatible with today's scientific understanding of the world. But I believe God as the spirit of life, whose presence is the heart of reality, is a reality we can intellectually defend today, and certainly one that changes our I am a Christian because of incarnation. Number two, I am a Christian because of atonement. Now I know this doctrine makes some of you squirm, some of us squirm sometimes, but Houston Smith is right that there is no way to talk about Christian faith without some conversation about atonement. There's no getting away from the central affirmation made many times in different ways in the New Testament. Christ died for us. We sang it in our opening hymn. It's an affirmation that has worked its way through history, unfortunately picking up some bad baggage along the way. We now know it almost exclusively through what has been called substitutionary atonement. This idea that a wrathful God demands somebody's death as payment for our sins. All those blood hymns have come out of this theology. I'm glad we don't sing them. But as I have told you, my friend, Dr. John Ballinger says if it were up to him, he would take out all those hymns, but he would have to find some way to leave the blood in. Now what John means by this is that love is costly. Love is, quote, bloody. There is no way to fully understand the life of Jesus without seeing it through the death of Jesus. And what is important about it isn't what Jesus did on the cross to make us right with a bloodthirsty God, but what Jesus calls us to do by taking up our own cross, by learning to live sacrificially in our own lives. Someone has said there is an atonement in the heart of God, and I believe that. 
God is love. And love that knows no sacrifice is not love. At the heart of atonement theology is the admission of humility. Sometimes I can't do it myself. Somebody else, my wife, my friend, my neighbor, a total stranger, somebody's got to step in for me and save me. Though some people would be appalled to hear me say it, boiled down to its simplest core, I think Bill Withers sings atonement theology pretty well. Lean on me when you're not strong and I'll be your friend. I'll help you carry on for it won't be long till I'm gonna need somebody to lean on. Sometimes we can't do it by ourselves. In the 21st century, learning to live in view of the other person, willing to give of who I am and what I have, my time, my money, my talents, God forbid my life. Humility and sacrifice are still worthy values in the 21st century. I am a Christian because there is an atonement in the heart of God. And finally, Houston Smith says the Trinity is an essential Christian doctrine. It's another idea that people struggle with inside and outside the church, but Christian history cannot be viewed apart from this concept. Now, I've tried to encourage some of you to put aside your skepticisms, your hyper-analytical reasoning when it comes to the Trinity, and see it much more as poetry than as some kind of mathematical formula what I believe we need to take from Trinity is an understanding that whatever God is, God is not just one. Not just alone. Think of the great danger of aloneness. Either the danger of aloneness to people who are weak. Wow. Think about dying alone. And think about the danger of aloneness to people in power. It's why the brilliant founders of our country defined the system of checks and balances, judicial, legislative, executive powers, each balanced by the other two. Aloneness, power alone is dangerous. God is not static unchanging, immovable, impassionate, absolute power. God, according to Christian theology, is a community of mutual respect. What could be more important for today's world than an understanding of God that might promote harmony and sharing, mutuality and respect? Community. I am a Christian because I believe in community. The title of the sermon is A New Way to Be Christian. As you have probably heard me say before, I resist the notion that God did something categorically different in Jesus. Among other things, I think those kinds of statements diminish our understanding of 
Jewish faith and our relationship with the Jewish community as if what God did for and with them was wrong. As if Jesus represents God's admission of failure, starting over, trying again. If, as Christians say, Jesus was the image of the invisible God, then what God did in Jesus is what God has always been trying to do. I believe incarnation and atonement and trinity, that is to say, tangible presence and humble sacrifice and community, have always expressed the heart of God. What was new in Jesus was the way he was able to express the oldest truth there is in a way that seemed new to people, to which they could respond, a way that they felt something and were moved by it. Today, I think what people need is not some new philosophy. They need to hear the oldest truth there is tangible presence, humble sacrifice, community, expressed in a way that gives them a new lease on life. G.K. Chesterton once said, it is not that Christianity has been tried and found wanting. Christianity has been found difficult and it has seldom ever been tried. Maybe you ought to try it today. Christianity, tangible presence, humble sacrifice, community. Like putting on a new set of clothes. It's the oldest truth there is, but it will change the world. May it be so. Amen. Thanks for listening today. We invite you to learn more about Park Road at parkroadbaptist.org. Park Road is a progressive faith community located in Charlotte, North Carolina, encouraging independent thought, community service, social justice, and interfaith understanding. Grace and peace to you.